I wish to greet you in Christ's name. It's good to be here with you this morning. I uh, shared at Paris Chapel a number, a series of messages on the tabernacle, and I want to share this morning the final one, the glory of God's presence with you. It's the it's a topic on the Ark of the Covenant that was located in that tent, in that tabernacle. I got a lot of help from a book called uh, The Ark of the Covenant, illustrative of God's presence with his people by James Harrington Evans. I want to give them credit for that. Our text is going to be taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 25. I want to read some verses there here in a few minutes. Exodus 25, verses 10 to 22. The topic is the glory of God's presence. Gerald was sharing just a little bit um, in the opening here about the events of Friday. And I, uh, I struggled with the events of Friday. It, uh, I just couldn't get my, my arms around that tragedy uh, because of the, the senseless nature of it. And I uh, went online this morning and looked at a few pictures of the children that were there at, uh, at that school. And uh, there's a six-year-old, Olivia Engel. There was a, another six-year-old. And another one. And there were a lo- list of pictures of these little children that were, were killed when uh, this young man went into the school and, and shot them to death. I, I don't know if I can take... Uh, assign any kind of real thing to this other than that there's evil. There's evil out there, very much so. We get so complacent in America with uh, seemingly good people around us, and we forget that there's evil. I think that I brought a little closure, a little bit of sense came into my mind as I started thinking about uh, abortion and the thousands of children that, uh, millions of children that are aborted every day in this country, in our community. And I realized there's evil. There's evil. And uh, we, need, we, can't, we can't ignore that. But the fight is, is not over. Um, God is going to win over evil in the end. And maybe, just maybe, some, some good can come out of a tragedy like this. I don't know just what's going to happen with it, but it's, evil is out there, and, uh, and we need to be uh, a light in the middle of, of that as God's people. The Ark of the Covenant is, is our topic this morning. Just a little bit of a review the term Ichabod always kind of fascinated me. I guess it has to do with that little story that you read about Ichabod and the headless horseman. But the um, Ichabod is a, is a name that was given to a little child uh, that was born on the day that his grandfather died. 
His grandfather was Eli. He was the priest. He was a big, heavy, very overweight man, sitting out in front of his, out in front of the uh, on this at the city gate in a uh, tradition was in a in a backless chair. He would sit there, and you know the news coming back from the the war effort wasn't good at all. They kept coming back, and it was it was really bad news. And uh, somebody came back and told Eli that the ark had been. The Ark of the Covenant had been stolen, and the glory of God was departed from Israel. The granddaughter, or the grandson, was born at this point to one of Eli's sons, and his mom died in childbirth. Before she died, she gave him his name, Ichabod. The glory is departed. Because the ark was a symbol of the glory of God's presence with Israel. And the glory of God's presence is our topic today. I want to ask a kind of a blanket, kind of a probing question. Do you sense God's presence here today? Is God's presence in our midst? I trust that you can. God's presence in your life. That is the question that we want to talk about a bit, is God's presence. In our trek through the tabernacle, we looked at, uh, at the altar, at the opening to the tabernacle, called the brazen altar. That's where, where people would come and offer their sacrifices. It's symbolic of the cross. The cross is, is where we're saved. As we come into, uh, on our journey into God's presence, we must go through the cross, and the common people, that's as far as they could go, was up to that altar. And they could offer their sacrifices. Then as our journey through the tabernacle, we went up to the, the laver. That was the brazen laver. It's where the priests would wash their hands and their feet. And that was symbolic of us as believers daily washing. Washing daily before, because we didn't want to come into God's presence with dirt. And I think that's, that's, there's tremendous symbolism in that. The Bible said that they needed to wash or they would die. If they went into the holy place without washing, they would die. As you move into the holy place, then you may have seen something looks like this. A, uh, a room with long rectangular room, curtain down at the end. This was known as the holy place. This is where the, the priests would go daily to worship and to to uh, put new showbread in there, new uh, loaves of bread would put on the table to light the lamps, and to offer incense on the altar of incense up next to the veil. It was the place of worship. As you go through there, there is the table of the showbread, which was stocked with fresh bread daily. It's a symbolic of Christ being the bread of life, and how we are to partake of Christ on a daily basis to gain strength. For living. On the left side, as you go up through the Holy of Holies, is the, uh, the holy place, I should say, is the uh, golden lampstand or the candlestick. Again, symbolic of Christ and his being the light of the world. Up against the curtain is the altar of incense, or was the altar of incense, where the priest would offer daily. He would take a censer, a container, go out by the altar, get some. Uh, coals off the altar outside, the brazen, the large altar, put those coals in this censer, take it up and put it on top of that altar, 
And then he would sprinkle this special preparation, this special incense into the fire, into the live coals. And the smoke from that would, would, would fill the room. And also it would waft, it would actually permeate the, through the curtain on into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. It's very symbolic, very meaningful as we look at our prayers that we offer daily before God is, is the altar of incense, our prayers coming before God in His throne. The veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was a large curtain, very multi-layered curtain. And the veil was, was a, a separation that kept people away from the Ark of the Covenant. It was also then used as a covering for the Ark. They would take and take the veil down when they were disassembling. Only certain people could do that. They would take the veil down and, and, and cover the ark with it. And then they would have other blue and other coverings over top of that also onto the Ark of the Covenant. That veil, we know, uh, later on in the temple was rent uh, by the, at the death of Christ. And someone has depicted it looking something like this. The priest was there perhaps doing his, his thing there in the holy place. And the, ark, and the veil was rent from top to bottom. That's symbolic of Christ's atonement being completed, his flesh being rent, and now the way being open for us into God's presence. The topic this morning is the Ark of the Covenant, and I'd like for you to visualize this a little bit. This is a model only. Uh, it has disappeared. We don't know. Nobody knows where the actual Ark of the Covenant is today. But it, has dis it disappeared somewhere along, uh, oh, maybe three or four hundred years before Christ. It was the last time that uh, it, it, uh, it was known to have existed. But uh, there, it, is, it was used during the tabernacle worship. And uh, it is known as the, the Ark of the Covenant. We will read from Exodus 25, 10 to 22. If you would stand, please, and we'll, we'll read this passage, Exodus 25, 10 to 22. As you're reading, uh, try to visualize just a little bit the, the ark as it was being constructed, or the instructions are here for, for constructing it. And then we want to talk about it. Uh, Exodus 25, verse 10 says, Thou shalt make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold round about it, around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put on it on its four feet, two rings on one side of it, and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put the ark into the ark, into the, ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. 
Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. You may be seated. The ark was the central part of the tabernacle. The pattern was the first pattern was given to Moses. The tabernacle sheltered it, the veil screened it from view, and it was the focus of the entire worship structure. It was the heart, if you will, of the worship experience of that day. It was where the presence of God was entailed. It was the meeting point of God and man. It was a symbol of God being willing to communicate with man and to have a relationship with man. I find that very interesting that God would actually stoop, if you want to say that, and it's hard for us to grasp God, but God actually would come down and would meet with man and would be willing to communicate with man. This poem I ran across that I was, spoke volumes to me says, Thy favors, Lord, surprise our souls. Will the eternal dwell with us? What canst thou find beneath the poles to tempt thy chariot downward thus? Great God, what poor returns we pay for love so infinite as thine. Words are but air and tongues but clay, but thy compassions all divine. Talk just a little bit about this chest. It was made with a wood that they were able to get from the desert area there, acacia wood, or the uh, that wood still exists, I believe, out in the desert areas. It's a very uh, small trees, very very tough wood. Uh, measured 45 inches long by 27 by 27, very much like a little cedar chest would be in your house. A little chest uh, about. Yeah, long and, and this wide and, and this tall. Uh, it was made of this wood and then overlaid with gold. So it was very much gold covered. The poles were kept in little rings on either side. They were never removed. They were kept there. And the, uh, the priests then would carry those, that, uh, that little chest around with those poles. On top of the chest, there is what they call a mercy seat. It was a little hard to figure out sometimes, but it's actually just the lid of the chest was, was a mercy seat. It was made of solid gold. It was not made of wood. It was made of solid gold and crafted and, and built right into the top of this, this lid or this mercy seat were the two cherubim with their wings overshadowing the center area, perhaps as depicted here. You'll see a lot of different pictures of people's conception of what it was actually like, but this is the one that somehow resonated with me. Anyway, so this is how I imagined it to look, so I chose this picture. But anyway, they, 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 uh, they, the, the, the angels were there, or the cherubim, uh, looking at each other, and God's presence was said to be right there between them or on top. We can't quite put it exactly, but... There was where God actually 
a representation of God's presence was. There, right there on top of that mercy seat. God was said to dwell above the mercy seat and between or above the cherubim. An interesting point that I'd like to make is that the Hebrews never were allowed to have an image of God. There was no image of God allowed to be made. That was considered to be blasphemy and idol. You would never make an image of God. God's presence was to be visualized in your mind. It was God's presence there, but there was no likeness of God ever made. God's presence was there, but there was no image. That was a huge, uh, huge separation from the nations around where they would make images of their gods. But God was never to be crafted into an image. Psalm 99 says, The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. We know that God really can't live on the earth as such. He's too large. The very heavens cannot contain God's presence. And for the sake of time, I will not read Acts 7. I was intending to read that Stephen's sermon that he gave before his martyrdom, he says the very heavens couldn't contain God. And how would you live in a house like this? But it gave, it seems like, a focus point for the children of Israel to understand in their minds, somehow to visualize that within that veil, they could never see it, but within that veil, within that darkness, within that thick darkness, God was there. The visible representation that they did see was that cloud that was up above the tabernacle, that pillar of fire by night or pillar of cloud by day, whenever God was present there. The ark did contain a couple of, couple, three things inside of it. Um, the most notable one was the ark, was the testimony or the Ten Commandments that were written by the finger of God. They were stored in there. And for a period of time, two other items were there. One was Aaron's rod that budded and a bowl full of manna. These were figurative of God's provision and God's leadership or God's choosing leadership. Later on, those were missing. We read later on accounts that, that in fact, later on in the Israelite experience that only, the only thing in there was, in fact, the Ten Commandments. And uh, I think we need to be very understanding that, that the sim- symbolism of the Ten Commandments being in this ark was the fact that God is very much concerned with His commandments. People call it legalism. People call it whatever you want to. But God is concerned with His commandments, with His laws that He gives for His people. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Our view of obedience to His word must be very central to understanding who God is. I think it's very sacred to understand as we look at God's word that we understand it is to be obeyed. It's not something to be taken lightly as evidenced by the fact that his commandments were placed inside this, this ark. There was also another copy of the law placed on the outside of the ark that people could access and later was found by uh, Hezekiah or Josiah. 
Hilkiah the priest brought it to Josiah the king. And someone had found a copy of it, and they were able to read it. Uh, so there was a copy kept outside as well, not just the one inside the, inside the ark. God's presence concealed. The ark was carried from place to place with coverings over it, shielded from the ordinary gaze. Only the tribe of Levi could be involved with carrying it. Only the family of Kohath were to be bearers of the ark, and they could not touch the ark. Only the, the high priest and, and some special of Aaron and his sons could actually go in there and cover the ark up with the curtain and the other coverings. And after that, these sons of Kohath could come and bear it by grabbing the poles and carrying the ark. No earthly light ever shone on the Holy of Holies, not the sun, not the light from the candlestick. God dwelled in thick darkness, and God spoke to Moses from within, between the cherubim. No man could see the face of God and live. He is the unseen deity. He would allow no visible representation to be made of him. The focus of the Israelite people was toward the holy place. As they prayed, as they thought of God, they thought of that place, the Ark of the Covenant. God is a spirit. We have not heard his voice at any time, but we do believe by faith that he exists and that he is very interested in us. Jesus, as we know, is our way to the Father today. For Christ has entered, Hebrews says, in, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Isn't that neat? Jesus Christ is our advocate. He has appeared and he is sitting on the uh, right hand of the Father in his presence to this day. The ark was commissioned after it was made, and I won't go through those details for the sake of time again. There was a huge ceremony that happened. A lot of blood was sprinkled. A lot of offerings were made. The ark was commissioned, and then it was placed within the holiest of holies. And then the presence of God came down and, and was there in that place, as was evidenced by the cloud that came down and, and rested on the top of the tabernacle. I'd like to make this message just a little more practical for us, maybe, as far as God's presence goes. Again, continuing on with our look at the, at the uh, children of Israel. And the point that I'd like to make now is that God's presence provides direction for us. God's presence is to provide direction for our lives. When he goes, we go. When he stops, we stop. They moved a lot back in those days. They pulled up stakes very, very many times. Can you imagine the whole ordeal of pulling up stakes and moving during that time? A million people or more having to move. And they camped around the tabernacle, and they had a very orderly, very orderly uh, progression as they pulled up stakes. The priests would blow the two silver trumpets, and then the tribe of Judah 
would move along with Issachar and Zebulun. Those, those tribes on the one side of the tabernacle would move. Then they would start taking down the, they would take down the tabernacle. They would cover the ark and get prepared to move on out. And then you would have the tribes on the, uh, I don't know which direction that is again. But anyway, the tribes of, uh, of, uh, on the southern flank, Reuben, Simeon, and Gad would move out. And then the Levite families would, would come with the tabernacle and follow behind them. And Moses would give this very common address to the people at that point. He says, Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. And then the other uh, tribes would march on out, and they, the camp was broken up. The cloud would move, the people would move. The cloud was taken up, the people would begin to get ready to leave. As they arrived at their new camping spot, the voice of Moses was again heard as it cried, Return, O Lord, unto the many thousands of Israel. They didn't choose where they would go. The cloud went and they went. Clouds stopped and they stopped. We also don't necessarily choose where we're going to go. But we are responsible to follow God's leading, God's presence. Someone has said the steps and stops of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Both steps and stops are ordered by the Lord. There are two kinds of people in here, in this room. There are the restless and the rooted Those who always like to move and those who don't like to move at all. The restless need to be content to stay when God's presence stays. You are restless. You are a rolling stone that gathers no moss. You are a wandering bird. You are a vagrant butterfly. You keep trying new things that attract your fancy and nothing satisfies. Is God in it? Are you aware of God's presence and leading? Can you be content to stay where God has placed you in his kingdom? My challenge to you who are restless, can you be content to follow God's leading in your life and stay when he says to stay? Will the, will the presence of God be leading you? On the other uh, side, you may be a rooted individual. It takes an earthquake or a major storm to get you to move. I am a rooted individual. I love roots. I hate moving. It takes sometimes God really just saying, do this before I'll take action. And it has, takes a, a two by four over the head to get my attention sometimes. But you know, we need to be willing when God says to do it, to go. Whatever God is saying to you, we need to be listening and following God. Your life, your, your surroundings can be a security to you and you don't want to move. But God, when God says move, we are to move. We need to listen to God. And then re realize that He promises my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And We don't always choose where we're going to go. 
but God's presence will go with us. And God's presence will give us rest if we're following his presence. And it's the safest place to be. It's the most joyful place to be is when we move along with God. Finally, I'd like to look at God's presence in the tough times. And that, that to me was symbolized perhaps by the crossing of the Jordan when the ark went through the, through the dry ground and the, when the water was piled up on either side. It was the time of the barley harvest. The river was swollen from the rains and everybody was wondering what was going to happen next. And the message from God was circulated through the ranks that you should sanctify yourselves because God is going to do a great work among you. We're going to change the order of the march. No longer is Judah going to be up front like they always were throughout the whole experience. Now we're going to have the priests going ahead. Judah and Issachar and Zebulun would stay back, and the priests in the ark would go first. They were to put about a half a mile between themselves and the multitude. And the priests stepped down into the waterway, and as they did, the waters stopped. Can you imagine the faith that had to be there in those priests as they moved on forward, carrying the ark and into the water? And then they moved on down. They stood in the middle of the river as the multitude marched on by. Very impressive miracle. And I'm sure that the, uh, the fact that the ark was there in the middle of the stream bed was, was a comfort to the, the, uh, the Israelites as they marched on by through the riverbed. Christians, we're going to go through Jordan as well. It's not if, but when. We will go through tough times. There are tough times in our, in our future. Maybe they're here right now. I don't know for each one of you what you're feeling, but the promise of God is that his presence will be there with us. Um, our river will be overflowing its banks and we will be afraid and we will realize that we cannot handle this one by ourselves. We have an amazing promise that we can claim from that God gave to Israel. I think it can be for us also. But now says the Lord, Isaiah 43, who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. I, I don't even want to know what all struggles each one of you are going to face in the future. And I don't know what we're going to face. What I'm going to face. But I have that promise and I claim it that God will be there. His presence will be there for me, for us. Maybe it's the final Jordan that, that scares you. I got just a taste of that here two weeks ago when my brother passed on. And it was, he wasn't afraid. No, I was not afraid. I did not sense fear in him at all. Um, I 
Death can be somewhat scary, but God will be there. None of us, it's a very personal thing. None of our earthly friends are there with us, but His presence will be there for us. We're Christians. We don't need to be afraid because He has promised to be with us. The song we sing says, When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises I will ever give to thee. What does it mean to you when you think about God's presence? I'd like to challenge each one of us to think about God's presence. The fact that, first of all, He does, He is here. He's here in this room today. He very much is. He has promised to be here where two or three are gathered in His name. He's with us as we go about our lives. I think we need to think about that when you get up tomorrow morning that God is with you. God's presence is there with you. He lives within you if you're a Christian. He lives by His Holy Spirit. He's within you. Are you walking with Him? Are your steps and stops being directed by His presence? And then do you trust Him for your life and, and your next life? Are you being obedient to follow Him where He leads? Shall we have a song? And we'll turn the time back over to Brother Gerald. <laughs>